1: Hey there, Knicks fans. How you doing? It's your boy Jonathan Macri with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School Podcast. Oh boy. This one was fun. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love every episode I record. Uh, I love every guest that we are lucky enough to have on. But uh, Chris Herring, I mean, what more can you say about Chris Herring? Chris Herring... Um, obviously he covered the team when he was with the wall street journal, he provided a different brand of, of coverage, a different, uh, a unique spin, I would say on your typical NBA um, coverage of a team that uh, I, I still miss to this day. And I think anyone who read Chris still misses. And obviously since then he's gone on to do great stuff with Five Thirty Eight and and um, now with, with sports illustrated, um, You know, but it's impossible for me anytime I think of Chris to not kind of reminisce about the days that he was covering this team full time and and obviously miss them. So it was an honor to have Chris Herring on for this episode, Um, an episode that is uh, inching us ever closer to episode number 400, which I I have been hinting at for a little while. And that is because, um, well, I know who's going to be on for it and I'll just, again, say it's, it's going to be a pretty good one. Um, but I digress. So Chris Herring came on today to uh, talk about a couple of things. One, um, he has a new book that is coming out in January. Uh, we did not get into the substance of the book because we're going to actually have him on again. That's the plan, at least, uh, when the book comes out. So uh, the book, for anybody who doesn't know, is about the 1990s Knicks. Um, is certainly available for for pre-order wherever you are listening to this podcast, whether you got it from uh, got the link from Twitter, whether you got it from your your podcast app, wherever, uh, the link to pre-order the book is right in there. And as uh Chris says towards the end of the episode, uh pre-orders help <laughs> when you're when you're, you know, an author and you're you're trying to get onto things like bestseller lists and and what have you. So if you have not already pre-ordered Chris Herring's um upcoming Uh, Nick's book, uh, please do so, Um, especially since it's going to be awesome. So we talked about uh, instead of the actual content of the book, uh, we talked about kind of his process writing it and where he started and how he went about things and just kind of what the last year um, and change has been like for him as he's uh, attempted to toe the line between, you know, full-time NBA writer and also uh, writing a book about a team that played nearly uh, 30 years ago. Um, And it was really insightful to hear about that process and to get some insight from one of the very best in the business. Um, I should probably say the name of the book. The name of the book is Blood in the Garden. Uh, So if you're looking to pre-order, you could just, you know, Google Chris Harry Nick's book, Google blood in the garden garden, whatever you'll, you'll find it. Um, We also talked about these Knicks and the current NBA and uh, didn't spend as much time on that uh, as we probably would have liked, but uh, you know, he has stuff to do. I have stuff to do, Um, but he gave some really fantastic insight, I think on this year's team. And more importantly than that, uh, I think he gave some great tidbits on, on his opinion on the state of the franchise, because you know, Chris, if you've ever l- listened to him, um, really on any podcast, but like especially on like the low post talking to Zach, like he has some really spot on, big picture thoughts about the league and specific teams in the league and franchises and where they are. And uh, I thought he was uh, very insightful in what he offered on the Knicks, both moving forward and and this year's team and where they are and and where they could go. So. Um, all around, really great conversation with Chris Herring. As far as other stuff going on right now, it, you know, there's not much. Mitch still isn't back. Uh, he's uh, Mitchell Robinson is is not a full practice participant. The latest word we have is that uh, he. Uh, they're I guess they haven't really said if he's going to be ready for the start of the season. So, you know, put that on the back burner. But other than that, everything is you know kind of full steam ahead for the Knicks. No, no setbacks. No. No nothing in in terms of anything there, uh, which is good. I mean, it's training camp. No news is good news. Um, so on that note, um, I'm going to uh, stop talking and uh, let you hear my conversation with the one and only Chris Herring. Joining me now. Um, you know what? I'm just I'm just going to refer to him how. Zach Lowe refers to him on his podcast. He is the people's champ. I mean, there are other people that may think they are the people's champ. They're not the people's champ. Chris Herring of Sports Illustrated is the people's champ. Um, Hello, Chris. How are you?
2: I'm really appreciative of that. I don't know how to take it, but I'll say thank you. But uh, I'm, I'm okay. How are you?
1: I love making other people because I am I get uncomfortable, really uncomfortable when people throw like compliments at me that are like a little over the top. So it's just my <laughs> way of of dealing with that is to do the exact same thing to other people who may be even more uncomfortable with it than I am. So you,
2: you've got me dead to rights in that in that <laughs> sense. I'm, I'm extremely uncomfortable, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> I, um, I am. Well, thank you for asking. Um Thanks for, for joining us. Obviously, we got an NBA season about to kick off. You're you're an incredibly busy man. Um, and that's actually where I want to start because yeah, I was thinking about it. We're we're getting to October in, in a couple of days. And I'm like, so it's September. A year ago in September, we were there was a basketball season going on, and then it stopped. And then we played a whole nother basketball season, and then that stopped. And then we had a break. And now we're playing another basketball season, and it's a year, and you Report, obviously, about this league, as well as anyone. And during all that time, you had a book that you were finishing up. And I just want to start by asking you, like, how has the last year and change been for you?
2: Just shambles, mostly. (laughs) Um, It's an honest response. I mean, it's the truth. I've just been like, I was trying to take vacation at work. And, uh, recently actually in the last month. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take next week off. And they're like, Oh, well, Howard's got next week off. I'm like, Oh, okay. Well then I'm going to take the week after that. Off. They're like, well, Mannix has the next week off. And I'm like, okay. It's like playing a game of musical chairs and everyone's already sitting down somewhere. So I'm like, do I get to, you know, and like, in fairness, that's partially me not communicating well with my bosses yeah. about, you know, when I can have off, but, there's that. So I ended up taking vacation last week, but I just started teaching at oh. Northwestern again last week, which I couldn't do during the time that I was working on the book, just because I, I had no time. So yeah. I used my vacation to start another job. So it's it's like <laughs> just not that much time off. And I've been really vocal about this. I think yeah. on a handful of podcasts. Like I love the league. I think more than most people. Um, I don't love it enough to where I like get really excited to go to summer league. I, I can't love it that much, but, um, fair. and I think some of that has to do with just Vegas and how exhausting, literally exhausting Vegas is with the heat and everything else. And, um, but I think the biggest thing, it's just, I don't like the idea of having essentially two seasons within like a season and a half. That's kind of how it's felt. And I, you know, some yeah. people are like, this is so cool. And I think it's really cool. Like if you don't have, any responsibilities outside of just having to watch it. If you have to cover it and, you know, and everybody was like, oh man, we need sports back, uh, you know, during the pandemic. And I I understood that, but like, it's for people that were trying to juggle both the reality of like having to work as part of putting the league on. And I think the players were a part of that and having to be away from their families and stuff like that. It was stressful and trying to do the book was, you know, during that time, it was certainly advantageous for me to have, you know, four months where the league wasn't playing where it was supposed to have been playing to just be able to sit and write. Sure. But, you know, during a chunk of the pandemic, I was in a relationship that, you know, quite frankly, fell apart because um, of the distance that I needed to write the book and the the isolation that I needed to write the book. So a lot of people were like moving in with significant others during the pandemic. I was doing, I I guess, not the opposite necessarily because we weren't living together, but uh, my girlfriend at the time and I did not get any closer and I think it actually did the opposite. So like there was, you know, and I, in my acknowledgements in the book, I apologize to family and friends and I, I kind of feel like there were casualties in this, you know, as far as just trying to finish the book and, you know, not being able to see people, it, 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 it takes something out of you, which I'm proud of it. And I think the book is better for it, but it's a, uh, it's a hard process to really get it right and to get everything in there that you want in there. And, uh, yeah. I, I, it's funny. Like, I'm sure I'd like to do it again at some point. Part of the reason I think it was better to do it now is that I don't have a family. I don't have what? children, you know, so I don't have really people to answer to, but the one person yeah. that I sort of had to answer to, I'm not with anymore. So no, you know, but maybe that, that answers the question too, honestly, but it's no, but that's,
1: that's why you're, that's why you're Chris Herring. Um, you no, know, you're, you're real, uh, one, but also, and I, I don't, I mean, I don't know you well, but when I, f- I kind of do feel like I know you in that, um, I feel like achieving balance in your life is something that is, is not something that is just a buzzword for you. Um, In that I imagine I just in hearing you talk about it, I can imagine how there was probably some conflict going on within you during this time to try to, because you're also someone that obviously, because you've gotten to the place you have in your career, who is goal oriented and likes to achieve goals. So I can't imagine that that time was very easy. Although obviously it's cool to write a book and all that don't get me wrong, but yeah, so congratulations on being done, right?
2: No, I appreciate that. I, I'm I've never been more proud of anything. Um, you know, I'm so hopeful not just for the book, but for the things that you know hopefully will happen because of the book and things that can be done with the book. You know, on maybe a bigger scale. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm great. I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to do it, and um, you know, I'm, I'm really, really hopeful. I mean, obviously, Nick fans know I've got a big. Place in my heart for them, and uh, I'm hopeful that for for people that watch those teams and you know, bled and lived and died with those teams, that they'll feel like it, not only that they get to read something about those teams, but that they learn something new about them. Because I, I I always read reviews of books and Amazon reviews, and you see the ones that are like, "This is just a rehash," and like I was determined to not have folks say that about this. I, I felt like I spent a lot of time trying to you know, talk to people about stuff that wasn't in the news clippings or, you know, that wasn't part sure. of the narrative at the time. And so I'm hopeful that that comes across because I don't, you never want to work on something for two and a half years and then <laughs> feel like everybody's like, I've read this already. You know, it's just oh. the worst. It would oh. be the worst feeling if it happens. So I hope it's not that.
1: I mean, I'm I, not having read it. I uh, I could say pretty confidently that that will not be uh, the feeling anyone gets. But I, I also just wonder, again, um, hearing you talk about this, it must be tempting because and again we don't have to talk about it too too much but i imagine writing a book is hard and you run into dead ends and those dead ends get incredibly frustrating and i imagine there are points in time where it could be very tempting to feel like well i've done so much in this area or i've done so much digging and i could j- like it's fine like it's fine i could end this at this thing at this point but to then push beyond that when Correct me if I'm wrong. No one knows if you're pushing beyond that point except
2: you. (laughs) Am I right about this? No, absolutely. I mean, there's so many things, and there were so many things, even at the end of the recording process, where like there were there were some really serious sorts of things that people would like bring up in the course of our conversation. Where I'm like, it it felt like someone was like dropping a like an explosive device in my lap, And, and you know, it's like Mission Impossible, where you can hear the clock ticking down or something. It's like, what am I supposed to do with this when my book deadline's in like a month? And okay. then also trying to figure out like, okay, this is a pretty serious sort of thought, allegation that's being thrown out there. Like, how do I confirm this with enough people? Can I confirm it? Will anyone help me confirm it with the time I've got left? And would I realistically rearrange the book for sort? So it's like, it's crazy to think that a lot of that stuff never sees the light of day. And, you know, you talk about cutting room floor stuff and material that would be, almost stuff like I, we're trying to figure out who to distribute the book to Mm -hmm. in the media and stuff like that. You and I were just talking about that before the podcast and um, you know, I'm trying to figure out like what reporters that cover other teams uh, that the Knicks were rivals with, because there's like new information on them and, you know, and stuff that's never been out there about them that they would have interest in, but also like over at any given point of like the reporting, like stuff on past presidents and, Stuff that's like never been out there. And then I'm like, wait a minute, you know, this is like a really serious sort of thing to say about like a former president. So then having to go back and trying to like nail that down and then realizing really quickly, oh, that that couldn't have happened the way you just described it. So it's weird because, you know, the book has to hold up to a really high level of scrutiny. So if you tell me something about Richard Nixon that he said in the presence of Patrick Ewing, you know, they're going to be historians that take really big interest in this. Somebody told me (laughs) that Richard Nixon came to a Knicks game, which he did, by the way. Um, (laughs) I did not know that that, uh, the Knicks had been in the middle of a a really long home winning streak, which they were. Uh Um, But then the game that he came to, they lost at home. Uh, And so, you know, the Knicks had already talked to Richard Nixon beforehand. He wanted to bring his grandson to the game. And um, so he comes, they had already asked him during the game or before the game we'd love for you to meet our players after the game and take a picture. And so he'd already agreed to it, comes to the locker room. This was the way the story was told to me. It was told to um, you. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, he comes down to the locker room, the players are, you know, they've lost at home for the first time in months. So they are not in the greatest mood, but um, Patrick Ewing in particular felt bad because, you know, there's a president sitting amongst them or standing amongst them and they didn't perform well in front of them. So Patrick Ewing gets out of like his ice bucket and, um, you know, apologizes to Richard Nixon for the Knicks performance that day. And the way the story was told to me is Richard Nixon pats Patrick on the shoulder. He said, that's OK, Patrick. Uh, sometimes in life, you've got to learn the hard way. If you can't beat him, cheat. And um, I was like blown away. Like my jaw had dropped. And again, this is the sort of thing where if that's actually the case, you know they're going to be that's, presidential historians that are like, I mean, obviously Richard Nixon is known for having not necessarily followed the rules with certain things, but uh, that's something where like that would be quoted and would probably be pulled out. Like my friend yeah. Miran Fader wrote a book on Giannis that you know is a bestseller and deserves we, it. so it's such a good We,
1: we talked to her about it on this on this podcast.
2: <laughs> yes, and I mean, just as someone who's really close friends with her, I know that she was a little bit frustrated at times about the the material that people were choosing to seize upon. Well, you can't control that though, right? You can't control it at all. But they were so much more focused on like Jason Kidd and the Android detail about how, you know, Kidd, you know, essentially sent somebody home or punished someone or yelled at someone for not being part of the iPhone group. And it got aggregated repeatedly. And I'm like, well, I know that would happen with this Nixon detail um, because there would be politics people that would would seize upon that. Yeah, sure. Who gives a damn about the Knicks, but like Richard Nixon was encouraging someone else to cheat.
1: But Um, how do you reconcile that? If you know the thing that you put in the book, like, I don't know what your reasons for writing the book are. I have an idea of what they, they are, but if you know that something is going to get in there, that is not necessarily representative of the ethos of the book. And you know that that's going to be the thing that's plastered. Like, do you have to have a conversation with yourself about, okay, I've confirmed this. I know it's true, but do I want to put it in?
2: Um, I, I think you probably have to put elements of something in, but you can't, you don't want to, it's, how, it's more like how much attention do you pay to it? Um, okay. if you, right. if you put something in, but not all of it, then, you know, it's going to get aggregated, but if you focus on it for a whole chapter, it's probably the likelihood that's going to be aggregated is greater. And you're also giving people more material to build entire stories around instead of just a couple sentences. But anyway, before we get too far removed from it, that detail about Nixon saying that to Ewing and the team was not accurate. And I was able to prove very quickly that it wasn't accurate. But it's the sort of thing where it's like, you it's not even just the stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor that is true, but it's also the stuff that you have to prove, at least to yourself, either be able to verify that it's true or to say, well, I can't prove it, so we have to cut this out. In that case, I just don't think it happened. A couple of people were like, I was right there. I don't remember him saying that. So hmm. it, it's important, to, but it's crazy because you know the value of fact-checking, this was really serious to me. This is a book that will sit on library shelves hopefully forever. Um, yeah. I hope libraries are around long enough to do that. Um, <laughs> but like it's not a story where you know you can, it's not a blog or a story where you can just change, you go in CMS and you just change it it's it's a book and it's people's lives that you're writing about and there were a lot of people that were really reluctant to speak with me that i convinced to speak with me um you the last thing you want is to kind of sully their name or to have a detail in there that's totally inaccurate or totally wrong um so you know i'm basically all these details in the book you're going and you're checking through with multiple people to make sure that it happens. So i'm going ask that's you i'm
1: going to ask you a completely unfair question but i'm going to ask you anyway um people look up to you um, you're again, you know, don't respond to it, but I'm just going to say you're one of you're, you're as good as they come in this business. Um, you know, what you're doing, you know, what you're doing because you've written for, I mean, you've written for some of the best publications in the world. Um, it, how do I, this process to get a book written that is both very good and very deep And very accurate and not very accurate is accurate. There is no very accurate. It's either accurate or it's not accurate. And to make sure that you could put your head on the pillow at night, knowing everything I put in that book, because you've done the fact checking and and everything else. Is is this the type of thing where like a a person who's maybe a a journalist starting out or a person who is an aspiring writer or something, I, I almost feel like would you would, because of how you're talking about this process, would you tell them like, this is not an endeavor for you to start with. Like in the first several years of your career, like you need to be kind of, I don't know, like, how do you even phrase it? You need to be an expert reporter to even begin to engage in a process like this. I'm just, I'm just curious because like everybody who's ever written anything has had the notion, like, oh, maybe I'll write a book someday. Like, what would you tell those people about when you get to the point where you're like, I know what I'm doing enough to be able to do this and, and, and do it the right way?
2: No, I, I don't think I would say that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't try to really go out of my way to tell people what they, should or shouldn't do or what they should or shouldn't strive for. Um, I'll also be really honest. And, you know, hopefully this is a little bit of a plug for him, Paul Nepper, uh, who's a Knicks fan and, you know, his, his blog before um, about it, I think for bleacher report um, about the sport, he, he did a book and it's, and he and I had a, I guess, kind of a direct message conversation where he was explaining to me kind of his process. And I think he, Another, another podcast. Yeah. And I, and I feel like, I mean, there's, I I certainly told him this, that I I felt bad. I I think the timing just kind of worked out strangely. I didn't know that he was working on something. I I, I might've even told him that I, I had a literary agent who pitched the idea of a a Nick's book to me. Okay. Um, At one point I didn't have the idea initially. And um, he pitched the idea to me and was like, you know, I've already talked to plenty of publishers that would have a big interest in a Nick's book. They just, you know, it's just a matter of me or another literary agent finding the right author. Um, and, you know, a couple of people had mentioned my name to my literary agent. So he asked me first to do it. I actually said no a time or two, because I was like, it sounds like a huge undertaking. I don't know anything about those teams. I was five when Pat Riley got hired. So I was actually four when Pat Riley got hired. So I wasn't really that intrigued by it at first just because I was like, I, you know, I don't know anything about that. I'd have to research all day long, you know, for a long time to do it. Um, but then you know, I, I thought about it, I was like, well, I don't have a family, I don't have kids, maybe it would be smart to do it and you know, put some money away for a home or something like that, which now I live somewhere. Um, not congratulations. Thank you. Um, but you know, I agreed to it, and we announced the deal. And then, I think, as I started really researching and really trying to dig in and find contact information for people, I think it was then that i I would do like Twitter searches for things. And I remember one day coming across, Paul was reaching out to different former players through Twitter, and I remember seeing some of his tweets. I was like, "Oh shit, he'd already started doing this." Oh wow. And then when I like would google it I'd see that he had I think on his his website that he had like an image and I think at one point maybe the title of his book was different than what it ended up being. Uh he, his the book he ended up writing was called Nixon in the 90s. Yep. Um but he had a website that like was talking about the fact that a book was coming soon. And so I was like does he have a publisher and you know I looked at it. So I basically when he and I talked I think what ended up happening is that um Quite frankly, I think what ended up happening is that because I've been in the industry for a while and because I linked up with a, you know, with an agent who's been in the business for a long time, um, we were able to get a book deal. But from the way Paul described it to me, I think that he, first of all, I think that he had started his process already, but I think because he's not, he hasn't been like as entrenched in the industry as I am that you probably have to submit more of a finished product to a publisher beforehand. I understand. Um, so when I learned that, I felt horrible because he basically was, I think he would have met with the same people I did to try to sell the book, to sell his version of the book. But I just think that my literary agent kind of pushed me forward in that process first. And because I was a little bit more of a known name that it, it probably could move faster. Okay. But I felt really bad about that. So anyway, I bring all that up to answer your original question. Paul did a really nice job with this book um yeah, sure. certainly for someone that my understanding is his, his background is a you know that he's a lawyer um i mean he did a lot of work i think he interviewed 80 90 people um he unearthed some details that like have not been out there before uh so i mean it, i would never say that someone can't do it i think it's a big undertaking to do it the way he did it certainly the way i did it um i do think that it helps to have some some grounding in journalism Um, I think more than anything, I think because you're going to get different versions of the same story of how something broke down. I think for me, even for me trying to explain like the Pat Riley, Dave Checkett's feud that basically unraveled, you know, that version of the Knicks. uh, I still am, you know, kind of scratching my head over certain details of it. I try to explain it the best I can. I try to explain both viewpoints, maybe even a third viewpoint from kind of the heat side of it. But it's hard. And it's it's you know, and it's something where like <laughs> I had lawyers read over, you know, every word of what I wrote, not just for that, but the entire book, because it's it's complicated and these are people's lives. And you don't want to and, and particularly, I think the other thing to add about this particular project for me or for Paul, this is stuff that happened 20, 30 years ago. And so yeah. people's memories are not the sharpest in every case. <laughs> um, you're trying to confirm stuff the best you can with multiple people at every turn, but uh I think it can be done and you get some people that aren't journalists at all that are just authors and they really haven't written for newspapers much or haven't written for newspapers in years. And they are still really good at this as far as book writing and just kind of creating, building the drama and building, you know, a certain tone in their writing. So it's doable. I just think it's it's difficult um, and it would be difficult for anyone. But you really, you know, I think this was probably the case for Paul and I know it's the case for me. Um I was fortunate that, you know, when I was at 538, when I was writing this thing that um, I basically, I was, I had requested essentially a book leave, a leave of absence oh, to write wow. the book. Okay, And they were like, look, if you can just write every now and then, maybe once a week, every now and then, maybe once every two weeks, we can probably live with that and fill in the rest of the gaps for you. Okay. That way you don't have to stop taking a paycheck and we can still have you on the site. We would you know, that's why we brought you here. Um, you can take the leave if you really need it, but we'd prefer you to stay on. Um, and I said, okay, so I, I kept doing that, but still having to watch a lot of basketball and, you know, having to watch a lot of basketball for my day job and trying to write a book, it's really difficult. And I think for most people, it's hard to do that when it's not your only focus. And so, um, to Paul's credit and to anyone else, people that have families, people that have, you know, a day job, like I did people that have a a busy day job. Um, even during the pandemic, when most people were just trying to stay afloat somehow between the virus and between trying to work or trying to stay safe, it's a lot to try to do it. So I think it's doable. I don't want to discourage anybody, but it's, it's, if you're doing a good job of it, unless you're just wildly, wildly, wildly talented, it's really (laughs) hard. And, you know, in this case too, it's factual. So you're having to interview a lot of people to just nail down all the facts. It's a really hard process. And, I I look forward to it again someday hopefully if I can find the right subject but I I don't necessarily look forward to it like right now or really soon because it's hard
3: and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech?
1: So I have, I have other questions on on the book, but I'm going to save them for uh, when we, uh, hopefully, when I can have you on again um, to, after I've read the book. But I do want to um, get to a little bit of the Knicks, uh, the current Knicks, uh, not the Knicks of the 90s. Um, although there are some, some connective tissue there um, and, and maybe the NBA. Um, let me start here because you, uh, I, what I loved um, about when you, and what I wouldn't do to have you back. When you used to write about the team every day um, is you just uh, you had a, in my personal opinion, a better sense for the kind of the fabric of the organization and things that like, there you know, the reasons why things did not go well a lot of the time. Um, and we've talked about them in the past and like what it would take to get out of them. And now we're here. And it feels pretty dare I say hunky dory, everybody's on, you know, kind of looking in the same direction and it seems to be going well. I know they don't have, you know, the roster yet and, and what have you, but do you, do you buy that this organization has turned things around for and take that to mean whatever you want it to mean?
2: Um, I I think, and I remember feeling this way when I covered the team in 1213 where they won 54 games kind of out of nowhere and um we're two seed and there was that question and i mean the difference there was that as soon as they did that as soon as they got ready to start the next season they fired glenn grunwald you know on the eve of training camp or whatever on media day whatever it was so what i would say even with that caveat is that i i think you need to see a couple seasons in a row of that um you know, it's nice to have one unexpectedly good season. I think it's harder now when, when teams are going to be king out for you a little bit more. Sure. Um, it does appear to be healthier. Uh, obviously, winning will make people feel a lot better about that. Um, but, you know, there, there's at least stability, even if you complained about what the Knicks did in the offseason, which I think it became a little bit tougher to criticize it when you saw the team options and everything like that on the, you know, the third year of a lot of these deals. Um, there's at least stability, which you have not always been able to say that about this team. Um, you know, if you felt like there were anvils on this team that really weighed things down, um, at least in one case in the starting lineup, I think you can tell I'm talking about that's not there anymore. Uh, you know, you're getting Mitchell Robinson back. Um, and you, you know, frankly upgraded at least one of the positions in the starting lineup, maybe two, I think most people would probably say that Fournier is a step up from, from Bullock, uh, although some areas, yeah. Exactly. And so, I mean, it, it, it's easy to see the upside here. I think the the conflict that I think you're seeing between there, there's kind of some people in the media and kind of in the analysis world that don't feel all that strongly about what the Knicks did. And then there are some people that think that they hit a home run or at least a double or a triple. And mm-hmm. I think the conflict is the Knicks, even while they played well last year, that they played above their heads last year. And so there's some regression coming this year. And I think that's a completely fair rationale. If you're not high on them, Um, I think that you could probably find nuance even within that rationale as well to say that you think the Knicks might do well. Uh, Sure. Julius Randle was wildly solid or wildly great last year as far (laughs) as you have his MVP candidate level. Um, We shouldn't expect for him to be that good, but at the same time, his shot should be a little bit easier this year um and Hopefully. you can say that about everybody else and so i think that's kind of the question um that i have that a lot of people have is how much easier do those shots get and even with that being the case i still don't know that you would expect him to shoot and play as well as he did last year but i don't think it matters whether he and the other guys play as well during the regular season i think it's more having more offensive options in the playoffs assuming that they get there sure. um now they've made the playoffs so that really shouldn't be the goal anymore it should be to try to win around yeah if not more than that. But I, um, yeah, I mean, I I buy the fact that they should be back this year in the playoffs. And once you can do that for a couple of years in a row, uh, I guess they're not a young group. It's gotten really easy to say that they're a young group. They obviously have younger guys that are in key roles, but they also have a lot of vets. Um, I think it's completely realistic to see them back in the playoffs. And I think if you're in their position, you just want to string that together a couple of times. That's essentially what Brooklyn did. And Brooklyn landed a couple of stars that way. Um, so uh, granted one being unvaccinated, but we could talk about that another time. Uh, but uh, we, but we I, mean, might, I, I think, we might talk I about think that's it what now. you want. <laughs> I think that's what you want. By the way, the Knicks being fully vaccinated, it's crazy to think that they're the team that is like not making noise just because you know they're not in the news or they're not overly dramatic story right now. So um, I think that that is a step in a positive direction. I don't know how positive. But I think we'll have a better sense of that by the end of the season.
1: Um, I, I completely agree. Uh, I, I want to ask you real quickly about Kemba. Um, I have. So I, I usually come up with one crazy theory before every season. And this season's crazy theory is that I think um, they should try to play Kemba um, every day and they should try to play him 22, 24 maybe 26 minutes a night, because I obviously did not watch um, a ton of Boston last year. But my understanding from uh, listening to people who report on them and write about them every day is that the inconsistency, him being in, in, the, in the lineup, out of the lineup was really not something that was ideal uh, for them. And wouldn't it be nice if he could just be there every day um, and maybe just less those minutes? I Obviously, neither of us are doctors. We, we don't know. Is that the type of thing that would work? what I'm curious for from you and to as much as you could shed some light on this is like, do you have any sense of like how those decisions get made? So you have like a player who's a pretty, pretty prominent player. Like he has his team of people, his agents or whatever you have the Knicks. Like, is there some kind of like standard way these things happen? Is it, does it change depending on the organization? Like, how do you think if you, again, for whatever insight you could offer, how do you think they'll go about figuring out like, okay, what are we going to do with Kemba this year? (sighs)
2: Um, What I'll say from, you know, the time I've spent covering the league and, and, you know, either paying close attention to Chicago because I felt like I had to being from here and having a lot of friends that are just diehard Nick fans. I guess I was a – I'm sorry, Bulls fans. I was a diehard Bulls fan as a kid when, you know, during, I guess, the part of the Jordan era that I was old enough to actually watch and understand. And then, you know, I guess until I went to college or high school or whatever it was. But, you know, paying pretty close attention to the Thibodeau teams in Chicago, there was never such a thing really as him managing guys' minutes or really monitoring guys' minutes. And, you know, you could make the argument that that backfired, you know, who knows how much of it was that versus guys that were just kind of injury prone to begin with, stuff that Mm -hmm. would have happened anyway. It's hard to know. But what I'll say is that I can't remember a time where Tom wasn't finding a way to justify the minutes that he was giving someone as far as he's giving them all these minutes and now he's finding a way to justify it. I remember when um, I covered his I don't think it was his introductory press conference in Minnesota. It might have been his second year. Okay. Um, and I remember it was the year that they landed like Gibson and Rose and a couple other people. I'm trying to remember who else they got on that well, team.
1: It was Jimmy but, and uh, and Jeff T. I think were the other guy. <sighs>
2: Yeah, it might it might have been that season. It, you're right. It was the, the year they added Teague. You're right. Yeah. And I remember people were asking him about how he utilized Cat and Wiggins. And I think they had played like all 82 games. Wiggins mm-hmm. certainly had. Maybe Towns had two. And there were only like nine guys in the league that had done that or maybe 11 or 13 or something. But Tom, <laughs> instead of Tom saying – You know, yeah, we we played them a lot of minutes. Obviously, you mentioned how young they were, which he did that with RJ and he did that with Julius as well. But then he I mean, like, so this is the thing because you get people that are armed with data and use data really well and they use it to make the point you agree with or that you're more compelled to agree with. Tom does that to justify his own thinking. And so I remember when he was asked a question about uh, about Cat and Wiggins. He was like, Well, look, they're durable. They're young. They can take it. Their bodies can take it. And oh, by the way, we signed three of the other nine guys in the league that also played 82 eighty-two games this past season. So we're set. These, our guys can play. We know they can do it. And I'm like, I don't know if that's the way you want to think about this. Like, yes, they're durable. They were durable last year. But does that mean you want to take them out and roll them out 82 games? And I think uh, Taj was one of those guys, and he used that as a yeah. talking point. Uh, and it, it showed me how prepared he was to talk about. That specific question. So Tom yes. in my experience has never been looking to utilize someone less than they're used to being utilized. It's more normally. Not and I well. mean, I know there, I know there was the the joke made at the media day. Uh, yeah. Kimba, I think it was Mark Berman or someone asked Kimba how much is he gonna play? And he was like, I mean, I guess you would have to ask Tom. And he was like, he's gonna play. And it's it funny. was funny, but it wasn't, I didn't actually see it to be a joke as much as everyone else did. Cause I I get the impression that he's going to want to run him out there as often as he can. I won't say until someone tells him that he can't necessarily. Cause I think Kimba may not even want that. And also you have a very capable backup. You've got a couple yes. of capable backups, but I, I, I don't think that he was completely kidding about that. I think he does want to use him as much as he can. I mean, within reason, but I I don't think he's looking to have Kimba out there for less than 28, 30 minutes a game. It would be great to see him potentially play 24, 25 minutes. Maybe that's a little bit low, but you know, if you've got Rose there, maybe whoever's got the hot hand, and yeah. whoever you're finishing games with to be able to balance that out. But I don't, I don't think Tom's going to do that. I, I, I could be completely wrong. You know, yeah. I haven't covered the team in several years, but I don't think he wants to run anybody out there less. I think he always is looking for a way to try to, you know, give them more minutes. And I think more than likely we see Kemba, Take certain nights off so that he can play longer minutes than the other nights. That would okay. be my guess if I had to guess. Uh, I, I,
1: I would I would bet you a beer if I had any confidence that I was right, but I don't. That's why it's that's why it's my crazy theory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just a, a couple more, and then and I promise I'm going to get you out of here. Um, you you mentioned him before, or you you implied him before. Um, you know, Kyrie is. Um, He's doing his thing uh, across the river. Uh, I shouldn't say across the river because I'm in Brooklyn. Um like I don't I don't know how to have a discussion about this because it's just it's so multifaceted and I know I I think we all have the same opinions about uh vaccination and and what have you. Uh there's there's never really been a rivalry between the Nets and the Knicks like not a legitimate one. Um and like it feels like there's the start of one maybe that started last season. And now this is all happening. I, I just I'm I started to, I'm starting to think like well like does this add to the rivalry? Like are is like new how do you think New York will react to Kyrie being whatever he's being right now? Because like this situation is fascinating to me, and I honestly I don't know what to make of it because there are just like he is just a really unique guy, and he is planting his flag. And I, I like, what do you make of all of this? Even aside from like the next angle.
2: Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit in the same spot that you are. Where, um, I'm a little bit tired of the. It's a personal choice thing. It's, I get I get that it is, but it's certainly not. It's not. It's, um, it's not. You know, I, it, it's personal, but it also has the ability to impact other people. Um, I was befuddled as hell by Bradley Beal's response. Oh my yesterday, goodness. about how he wasn't sick, but all, all that happened was that he lost his sense of smell. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Um, I wonder if anyone would say that they they weren't sick; they just lost the ability to use their, you know, their one of their five senses. Functioned well that, or their bodily function. You know, people kept keep saying if you were to if erectile dysfunction was a symptom of this you know, how much quicker guys would get the vaccine. And I'm like, yeah, I wonder if anyone would say that they're not sick. If that happened, sense of smell seems sense of taste and smell seems kind of important. Uh, I know I like food enough for it to be important to me. So, you mean um, well. so, you know, I, I, I don't know what to make of that. It's certainly frustrating. Um, it is interesting. I mean, I'll put it this way. It certainly puts a decision on the table for him. I don't think the nets would trade him, but if you have someone that theoretically can't play in their home games, um, you know, and you're playing half of your games at home, obviously that, that becomes a pretty big decision, you know, for him and for Wiggins, it's the same case with the Warriors where they've got the same rule in place in in San Francisco. So, you know, whether or not, I don't know, it's very, very interesting. My hunch is that both him and Wiggins will end up getting vaccinated because it's a lot of money to leave on the table. I
1: nothing would you, shock you don't, me. You don't, you,
2: yeah, nothing would shock me at this point, but I I just feel like that's a lot of money to leave on the table to potentially leave a contending team that by all accounts probably should be favored. Um I yeah. think even if Kyrie didn't play, they might still be favored and maybe would deserve yeah. it. Um so I, you know, to sit out that I I imagine at some point someone's gonna get more frustrated, whether it's the Nets who've said essentially all the right things that they have us back. Um, I get that it's a, again, I I get how it is a personal choice, but it also seems to extend way beyond that, where it has the ability to impact just more than you as a person. Um, And clearly the league is trying to tighten the screws on these guys by, you know, making everything impossible to do, eating with your teammates, being in the same part of the locker room as your teammates, you know, having to do sign language with your teammates because you can't actually speak to them or whatever else it will be at some point. Um, you know, and, and obviously if you can't play your home games, that is a huge part of it. So I look, if, you know, if, if we were talking about a a 30 game, 15 game season, which you would never have that, and you were talking about seven or 10 games or 15 games, that's one thing, but this, we're back to an 82 game schedule now. So I just don't see how anybody would realistically sit out and lose out on half their paycheck. uh, I, I just kind of feel like something's going to give here really soon. I don't know what it'll be. I don't know if there's going to be more of an effort for religious exemptions. I know Wiggins got denied on his, um, you know, for you know a few games, a few days ago. I don't yeah. know what it's going to come to, but um, it's frustrating. And I mean, honestly, you know, it's not to say how anybody should feel. Maybe I am doing that. I'm not sure. But, you know, for Kyrie, uh, he does have a, you know, I remember Woj used the phrase disruptor. Yeah. Um And that tweet, and people were upset about it. Uh, he, he is pretty anti. And I think that by itself, generally, is okay. And I think, honestly, he's ended up on the right side of a handful of issues, I think, by being anti, I think, you know, quite frankly, I can't help but think about the bubble and yeah. him saying it's not a good idea to do it. Let's sit out. People were frustrated then by the messenger because of the fact that Kyrie wasn't even going to play in the bubble. So I was like, why is he the one making this argument on behalf of everybody else? Uh, But then, you know, uh, Jacob Blake happened and the Bucs decided not to play that game against Orlando in the playoffs. And George Hill went as far as to say, we shouldn't have even ever come out here. This isn't going to solve anything. So you had a lot of players that thought that. You had LeBron at one point walk out of a meeting that yeah. some people thought might spell the end of the league for that season. Um, so I think you had other people that agreed with him. I just think that because he's kind of checked out or kind of opted out of so many things the last few years, it prompts certain people to not take him seriously, but he's not always wrong. But this one, I think he's wrong about, and um, it, it's, it's a little bit frustrating. It's more than a little bit frustrating because it's, you know, he's someone that has, has roots to the native American community that claims to take those roots seriously. And, you know, I'm, I'm a black man. I know how it's hit the black community. I think maybe the only community that's been hit harder than the black community is the native American community. And um, so it, it, you know, I, I think when you think about that and you think about the fact that there are players that have suffered real loss over the course of this, and the NBA talks constantly about how it's a brotherhood it's not to say that guys should get the shot just because Carl Anthony Towns has suffered loss. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, there is a dissonance there, in, in listening to how shattered he is as a person, and then hearing other people talk about how, uh, you know, I'm going to do my own research and then, you know, ask really elementary level questions about this virus or how you could still get the virus after you've been vaccinated. It's very frustrating.
1: Yeah, I I'm I'm really happy you said that about Kyrie and about how sometimes it's just like being anti is in and of itself doing good. And then I go read what Kareem had to say in the in the Rolling Stone piece and like Kareem, I mean, I'll, I'll defer to you on this, has has anyone done more for for black athletes for for black people in this country? I mean, he's He's up there. I think he knows what he's talking about, and the way he phrased some of those things. And I would encourage anybody who hasn't read that piece to go read his particular very strong poem. wording, and and not accidental wording. He, I, no. I, I trust that Kareem chose his words carefully. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't. It's what do you do? What do you say about it? What do you? And I, I am just like you, very fascinated to see where this all goes. Um, and uh, more than anything, I hope we eventually get out of this and get back to. Whatever's going to be normal, man, because I don't know what that's going to look like. But
2: can't wait. Hope, hopefully, I cannot wait for that day to come.
1: Yeah, Um, I've taken up way too much of your time. Uh, Before I let you go, um, can you just remind folks at home a where they could find you and read your stuff, but probably more importantly, uh, maybe a little bit of information about the book and when it's coming out?
2: Sure. Uh, Well, thank you so much again for having me. I always have a good time talking with you guys. Um, I am at uh, Herring h-e-r-r-i-n-g underscore nba on twitter it's pretty much the only social media i really use to promote my stuff Me you um both. yeah I, I need to get better about that particularly as i got a book coming out but no you don't
1: you don't you don't need to get but twitter's fine
2: <laughs> i hope so um so you find my stuff there um i write for sports illustrated hopefully get back to writing pretty soon i know they need something from me later this week um as far as a story but there's that um, I co-host a podcast of my own on Open Floor, um, normally once a week for Sports Illustrated. And as far as the book is concerned, um, it's essentially done at this point. I'm just making final little tweaks and edits to it. Um, It will be out January 18th. But would love and encourage anybody that um, that's listening to pre-order it. You know, it, it sounds like begging a little bit. It probably is that uh, when you pre-order a book, it, it does not you don't actually get charged for it until you actually receive the book until the day it's out. So the book doesn't come out until January 18th of, of next year, a couple months. But um, there's so many people that are like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to wait and buy it in person, which I totally get that. I used to be that person too. But in understanding the book industry more, um, pre-orders, if you had to pick between one and the other pre-orders are actually probably more helpful to the author that you want to help in a lot of cases because of the fact that um, the booksellers, everybody from not just Amazon, but, but certainly the, the brick and mortar stores, Barnes & Noble, the independent stores, they have a better sense of what to stock their shelves with if they see a book is landing a lot of pre-orders. And so oh, wow, okay. there's a better shot that someone is going to see the book in a bookstore if there are a lot of pre-orders behind it. Because they say, oh, a lot of people want to buy this, so let, let's make sure we have a bunch of copies of it ourselves. So it, it, it ends up being really helpful. It doesn't cost anybody anything to to mark down a pre order, and then you also get it the day it comes out. You know, so it's it it, it seems like a small thing, but it's a massive thing. I think, particularly for first time authors like myself, to basically get off on a good foot. Um, so people have asked me that question. It's it's wildly helpful. Any support that people lend is greatly appreciated. Um, hopefully the fans that listen to you guys know that I uh, have great respect for you all. i have always been no. dealing with you all for the most part. And um, so I appreciate all the support that people have already lent. You know, I feel like it also feels guilty why I need to tap into the other social media sites. I, I also feel like people on Twitter, are like we know your book is coming out. We know we've seen you tweet about it. Uh, so I need to start hitting up people on other sites, but it's, it's been the the reception has been wonderful. And these are people that haven't even read the book yet. So I'm hoping that, it resonates with them when they get a chance to read it, but I'm already grateful for the support that I've already gotten for it. So thank you for giving me a chance to plug in and talk about
1: it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, cannot wait to read it. Uh, blood in the garden, uh, is the name. Uh, it is. oof, goodness. It's been tabbed on my, on my, in my mental list for a while. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Herring. All right. I hope you enjoyed that spot with Chris. Uh, Chris is the best. He really is. There is, again, I I don't know if there's a nicer person in sports media. Uh, There's certainly very few people out there who are better at what they do. Chris is amazing. Uh, Last plug for this. If you have not already pre-ordered the book, uh, especially after that conversation, I hope you would uh, consider doing so. And um, of course, plug for us if you uh enjoy the podcast you want to support what we do here at nicks film school feel free to uh subscribe it uh or subscribe to it rate it review it tell your friends tell your tell your family tell your tell your pets uh tell anyone who can you know put in a, a pair of earphones and uh, anyone who wants to join our patreon if you haven't already done so we just crossed a nice little threshold uh, my, my producer Andrew Claudio has has informed me uh, and we're we're keep moving up and it's amazing that we launched this thing in the off season and they haven't even played a game and uh, we have the amount of patrons that we do so if you want to get on board that uh, you could just go find that link uh, anywhere you get your content from us the youtube channel um you know anywhere just go to patreon.com you know type in nick's film school uh you get a bonus pod every week depending on pretty much any tier that you're in and then uh, some other fun perks as well so uh thanks again for listening to our episode and uh, we will be back with you with our usual monday spot in a few days